Welcome to SCD Church's podcast. You can always join us for our live services Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings out in our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our services live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Thanks so much for listening. All right. Well, uh, good morning. Thanks for being here. Okay, good. Good some of you guys. So last night before service, uh, Nick uh, came up to me and he goes, hey, are you preaching tonight? And I said, well, unless you're going to. And I thought today he might be. I was like, yeah, let's get it. All right. Yeah, I told him. I said, hey, you feel it? You just take it, you know? When you just, just pray and then look at me and go, I got this, and then fine, okay? Uh, so maybe, uh, maybe next time he'll do that. Anyway, I'm glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, so we, uh, we started a new series last weekend, and it's a series uh, about the book of Nehemiah. And uh, if you weren't here, you should go back and watch it because uh, you're going to get kind of the background. But let me just give you a quick recap, and then we're going to jump right in because we've got a lot to do today. So uh, the book of Nehemiah is, of course, in the uh, Old Testament, and it's about the people of Israel. Uh, if you don't know anything about the Bible, the people of Israel, like God's chosen people, and through them, he's going to reveal himself to the world and bless the world. And as long as they are faithful to him, he will be faithful to them. And, uh, and they are for a long time. And he raises up this entire nation until they start to go out on their own in disobedience, rebelling against God. And God says, okay, I warned you. He disciplines them, and they get taken over by uh, other nations one of which is Babylon. And so they get marched off into exile for 70 years, and eventually Babylon gets taken over by the Persians, and the Persian king Cyrus, he says, it's time for everybody to go home. If you are from another homeland, you are free to go. And so people start making their way back to Israel, specifically to the city of Jerusalem. And so we see there's a couple different parties throughout the years who have gone there, and they've tried to rebuild and kind of start um, re-engaging just the, the city, but also kind of their, their spiritual heritage. And things don't really go well. And so this is how we get to uh, the character of Nehemiah. He's sitting in the palace one day. He is the cupbearer to the king, which means that he has a pretty high position. And he hears about the condition of Jerusalem. He hears that it's a complete mess, that the walls are broken down, the gates are burned. And he starts to have a burden uh, to go and to help these people. And the reason why is because he knows that Jerusalem is not just any city. This is supposed to be like God's chosen people in the city in which David once was uh, king of the, uh, sitting on the throne, or Solomon, his temple, the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence. I mean, this is a very important part of God's redemptive plan. And so he decides that he's going to do something about it. He prays, he prepares, and one day the king says, well, what do you want to do? What, what's the problem here? He says, well, what I would like to do is I'd like to go back to Jerusalem. Um, I would like some time off to be able to do that. I would like you to send some people with me, and oh yeah, can you pay for it? And apparently God's hand is with him, that's what he says, because the king grants his request. And that's kind of where we left off last weekend, is we left off with this idea that Nehemiah was called to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And as we look through this, the, the scripture, it says that we are called not to rebuild Jerusalem, but to build the kingdom of God. And that's kind of where we left off. And so I'm going to jump in because we got a lot to get through. Okay, uh, if you have your Bibles, Bible app, we're going to be in Nehemiah 2, starting at verse 11. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put on my heart to do for Jerusalem. So he arrives in the city, probably a pretty big deal. He comes with all these people, all these, uh, all these resources, trees, things like that, and he doesn't tell anybody why he's there. I'm guessing it's pretty obvious why he's there, but he doesn't tell anybody. He just hangs out and kind of observes for a few days. And then one night, he takes just a couple guys with him, and he starts to go and observe all the damage that's been done to the walls. He takes notes, and he starts to prepare. And once he's figured out what needs to happen, he has a game plan together. He brings all the people of Jerusalem, uh, and he says this. 
He says, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. So he gives them this vision. He says, look, God has put this burden on my heart, and he's opened up these doors of opportunity for us to do something about the city of Jerusalem. Like, we're supposed to be God's chosen people. We're supposed to be a light to the world. And for the last almost 150 years, we can't even protect ourselves. We can't even, we, how are we going to bless the world if we can't even pay our own bills? This is embarrassing. So he says, we need to, we need to get our act together. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Now, I have, um, I've had the opportunity to make lots of asks of people, like ask them to participate in building specifically the church. I've never had this response before. Or I said, you know what, guys, let's go and let's, let's really invest in these kids and volunteer. And about three people go, I might be willing to do it. Everybody else is just like, <laughs> don't make eye contact, right? So the people step up and they say, you know what, we need to begin this good work. And I don't know if this is the case or not, but maybe they got a little glimpse into um, a biblical perspective on work. So Tim Keller, one of my favorite authors and pastors, he wrote a book called Every Good Endeavor. And he says, we, we misunderstand the purpose of work. Is that if we go back to the very beginning of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, we see that we were actually made to work. That we were supposed to be builders, co-creators. We're made in the image of God, and God is a creator. He created us, he created the universe, and he continues to create, continues to work, continues to build. And so in our nature, being made in the image of God is we are supposed to be builders. We're supposed to be workers. Now, actually, if you go back, and this is before the fall. It's not a consequence of the fall when we screwed things up and sin entered the world, and now we have to work for our food. No, 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 That's, that, was, that was intended from the beginning. Because as soon as we are made, God says, well, now I want you to go get to work by tending the garden or by naming the animals. We even see this in Jesus. I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus shows up and he's not a philosopher or a nobleman or a general. He's a blue-collar worker carpenter, somebody who works with their hands. Not that there's anything wrong with those things, but I think it, there's a point there. Is He is a worker. He's a creator. He's a builder. The main issue today that a lot of people have with their relationship with work is they've disconnected it from their relationship with God. Either they don't know God or they haven't made the connection between the relationship with God and the relationship with their work. And so what ends up happening is one of two things. Our work either becomes irritating or an idol. It's irritating because it's just a means to an end. It's just for survival. It's something that we have to do. And you know if you're in this camp when, I don't know if you've experienced this, uh, like the Sunday night blues you ever had those? Where you think about what you have to do the next day, which is go to work, and you just go, oh, again? I mean, it's just constant, isn't it? I have to see those people and the boss, and oh, I know there's going to be drama there, and it's irritating. We just wish we could. In fact, we know it's irritating because here's the American dream. The American dream is work just long enough that you don't have to work anymore. It's called retirement, Amen. right? Like that's the dream is to not have to work anymore. And so it's either irritating or there's, I think, on the other side of the spectrum here is it becomes an idol. The work that we do becomes a way to justify our existence. It's how we find our identity and our security and our worth. And deep down underneath all of this, 
I think the motivation for much of the work that we do is either pride or insecurity. As a result, work, we either become workaholics, and it's the way that we're going to justify ourselves, or we become apathetic, and our work is boring and trivial, insignificant, and we lose all of our ambition. But the biblical vision for work is much different than this. The, the biblical vision for work is it is a, a gift. It's a stewardship. It's an opportunity to partner with God in what he's doing in the world. Like it's a way for us to partner with the creation where he's continuing to create and then he allows us into that process to create alongside with him. Martin Luther says in Psalm 145, he says this, uh, reflecting on the, the, the psalm, he says, God feeds every living thing, meaning he's feeding us through the labor of farmers and others. He's pointing out that the way that God primarily blesses us is not through miracles. I believe those happen, but I think the primary way that he blesses us is through other people. He says, I'm going to give you the ability. I'm going to give you um, all the resources that you need in order to continue to create more human flourishing. And so the way that I'm going to bless you is by giving these gifts to everyone so that you can bless one another. And when we catch this vision for work, I think we're able to to connect what God is doing with what we're called to do, it frees us. It frees us from being irritated by our work or making it an idol. Because we can just simply work knowing that we're partnering with God, even if it feels insignificant, even if we just don't understand, why am I in this job? Why am I in this place? Well, God has placed me here for a reason. And I may not know that, but here's what I do know, is that I can work as if I'm working for the Lord. And so whatever I am doing, I get to see it as a part of this giant puzzle that God is putting together, and I'm just a little piece in it. And that brings meaning into my work. We'll see some different examples of this throughout our story. We'll continue on verse 19. But when Sanballat uh, and... So, there, okay, I'll, I'll warn you right up front. There's a ton of names in here. I hate reading Bible names, all right? Especially out loud in front of people. Uh, and I went and I researched... Apparently nobody knows how to do this because I can't get a consensus on how to pronounce any of these names. So I'm going to make it up and you won't know the difference. All right. <laughs> when Sanballat, Ballot, Sanballat, what do you think? What do you want to go with? Second? We'll go with the second. Uh, the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, official and Geshem the Arab, heard about it. They mocked and ridiculed us. What is this that you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? So as Nehemiah begins this project, he has some opposition, and Doyle's going to talk about that next week. It's just expect opposition when you're pursuing God's call on your life. But I, I want you to just take note, and I can't elaborate on it, but I want you to just take note on their first line of attack in trying to stop Nehemiah from pursuing God's will. First thing they do is they try to make it political. I thought that was funnier than you did. I really thought that was like, wow, that's insightful. You know, it's not just today. <laughs> it's uh, okay. All right. Maybe too close to home. I don't know. Um, but the first thing they do is you go, oh, so you're, you're, you're trying to rebel against the king? You're not a part of the empire? Oh, I see. You're trying to do your own thing. You're trying to be your own person. Ah, you're not one of us. He answers them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Here's his response. You're going to try to make this political. I'm not going to bite. You're not going to drag me into the mud because this is not a political issue. This is a spiritual issue. 
This is something that God has called us to do. And so I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail. I'm not going to do that because this is all about God. And so if you're going to stand in opposition, just realize you're not standing in opposition to me, but in opposition to him. And then we go to chapter 3. And if you were to read, and I know uh, there's a few rooted groups that are doing this right now, I was reading through Nehemiah, start to finish, you would get to chapter 3, and immediately you would skip it. Because it is just a bunch of names and families and jobs which you can't pronounce, you don't know what they do, and is completely irrelevant to your life. It lists men and women, working class, ruling class, young, old, everybody. And here's the point that he's trying to make, is that this project is an all play. Nobody gets to sit out. Everybody has to be involved. Everybody is united in their vision and goal for what is going to happen in this city. And it's not primarily a construction project. It's a spiritual project. And so everybody has to be involved. And that's kind of the big picture of chapter 3. Is chapter 3 is trying to point out that building the kingdom is an all play. That if you are a Christ follower, New Testament, if you are a Christ follower, this is something that everybody has to engage in. Nobody gets to sit out. It also points out that um, the Bible looks at these, these projects differently, these kingdom-building projects, because the way that the world looks at them is they, they celebrate the guy whose name is on the building, but the Scripture celebrates everybody it took to get that building built. See, everybody is important in the kingdom. Nehemiah has a vision, but he needs other people. A vision without anybody else involved is just a dream. But he needs resources. He needs relationships. He doesn't have those things. He needs the king. And so God opens that door and here and he partners with the king. And then you have the people in Jerusalem. And they have the manpower, but they don't have the vision. And so he need, they need a, a visionary leader to come along with the resources and the ability to lead these people. See, all of them need one another. Not one of them can do it by themselves. One of those things that uh, the kingdom is an all or nothing type thing, kind of like building a wall. So if you're going to build a wall around the city, you can't build it like 80%. Like when your enemies come to attack and you go, look, dude, we've been working really hard. And there's a couple of people who didn't show up. So could you just not go on that side? Okay, like just focus on, you see how good we did on this part? Don't attack over there. Don't, don't look over there. Right here, look at how good these walls are that we built. No, no, no. That's not how this works. It's an all or nothing kind of thing. You either build the whole wall or you don't build any of it. The uh, scripture is clear. And not only in the Old Testament, but as we go to the New Testament, it says that if you want to discover what your purpose is, like what God created you to do, it's not going to be in isolation. See, culture says if you want to find out who you really are and what you are supposed to do, you need to look deep within yourself. You need to discover yourself. The scripture says, you're not going to find anything good down there. What you need is you need to get into a community of other people who are like-minded and building the kingdom. And then when you do that, you will find your purpose. Your purpose is only discovered in community. Because we're dependent upon one another. So I can't fulfill what I'm supposed to do if you don't fulfill what you're supposed to do. Or at least not to its fullest. You need me and I need you. That's kind of how this whole community thing works, is I can't go out into the world and be a lone ranger. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. Continues on, verse uh, 3. Uh, Elishabib, Elishab, Eli Eliashib. <laughs> I practiced it like 20 times before this too. I still, for the life of me, can't get it right. 
Doyle. Okay. Uh, the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated and as far as the Tower of Hananal. So uh, right off the bat, the beginning of the chapter, uh, starts to list all these people, and he puts the priests first. Not because they're more important than everybody else, because he's trying to show the priority of what's happening. One, the, the priests need to lead the way because this is primarily a spiritual endeavor. That this is all about building the kingdom. This is about rebuilding the people, not just the city walls, but their trust in God. See, right before this was Ezra, and Ezra went and he started to lay the foundations of the temple, and he started to try to begin a revival, because that was the ultimate purpose. And so he's tying it in. Look, this project that we're doing, here's how it ties into what God is trying to do in our lives. He goes on, he lists a bunch of other names, and, and I like this one in, in uh, verse 5. He kind of gets a little passive-aggressive here. He says this, the next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa. But their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Oh, I love it. Can you imagine? Like if we just stood up here and we went, okay, now here's all the people and what they did at SCG this last year. Here's the ways that they contributed. Thanks for the work. Oh, and here's the people who didn't. <laughs> I see you. I made somebody super nervous over there. Um, these are the people who were, they're, they're too important. They're too concerned with building their own little kingdoms to worry about building God's kingdom. I had a, a woman come to me after one of the rooted uh, talks that I did this last week. I did a bunch of rooted talks and, and uh, did a Q&A and I got some great questions. And, and this person came to me and said, hey, last weekend you shared kind of the, the state of the church in America. And one of the things that you talked about was how after uh, this whole 18 month of kind of chaos that when we came back to church, not just at Seacoast, but like all churches have experienced about a 40 or 50% decrease in attendance. Like people who were here actively engaged and involved are just disappeared. They're gone. Which by the way, if you had told me that two years ago that there would be an event in which about 50% of the church attenders would just disappear all of a sudden, I would have thought, well, the rapture is coming, <laughs> right? It's happening. Um, not quite. Uh, she said, I just, I'm, I'm beginning to get frustrated with some of my friends and family. I love them. I want them to be here. In fact, we went to church every single week together. And I'll text them now on a Saturday night and say, hey, are we, you know, I'll be at church. Are you going to meet me there? And every week it's, no, we're going to watch online, but we'll meet you at lunch afterward. <laughs> this is going to get uncomfortable in a second, got to be honest with you, especially for you online. <laughs> I, can just see, I can just see the... <laughs> can you just see all the windows closing right now? It's all pink, 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 pink. Oh, well. Um, she asked, well, well what, what should I say to them? What should I say to my friends and family who I want them here with me? I said, well... If, and if I can just be pastoral, I'm, I'm not going to try to make any jokes or jabs or anything like that. If I can just be pastoral for a moment. If this were six months ago, I would have said, you need to really encourage them to be here. Just how much it's going to impact their life and how much they're going to enjoy it. Just encourage them to be here. I wouldn't say that today, though. Again, this is not me saying it. This is what I would tell her to say. <laughs> I would tell her... It is time to have a serious discussion with those friends and family. Because it, it, as a pastor, I just want you to know what the scripture says about this. 
And this isn't just for people watching online. This is for some of us who, you know, we show up once in a blue moon and things like that. Here's what the scripture says. It says that when we refuse to gather together weekly at church, we are being willfully disobedient. I know it's harsh, but listen to this. In Hebrews 10.24, it says this. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. So here's what it says. The whole book of Acts implies this, but then Hebrews just comes out and says, look, the way that you can love one another, second greatest commandment, is by showing up to church every week. Because there is something valuable about being together, face to face. Like when we were experiencing that worship a moment ago, I don't know about you, but that was impactful. And it wasn't just impactful because we have great worship leaders. It was impactful because I'm watching you sing and you worship and you wrestle with God. That's why we have to be here together. It's not just about me. It's about all the other people that are here. Here's the other thing I would say is you've misunderstood the purpose of church. In this verse right here, it talks about this weekly gathering is not about you. Church was designed as a community primarily for you to contribute to, not consume. So the image in scripture of the church gives us, um, one, of, one of the images is of uh, a body. And it says the church is a body and Christ is the head. And all of us are different pieces and parts of that body. We all have different roles that we're supposed to play. Well, let's take that illustration a little bit further. Let's imagine that a piece of that body is removed. So Doyle and I have had the habit of losing fingers over the years. Luckily, they've all been reattached. Uh, his was a saw, mine was a dirt bike, whatever. And so let's go with that. What happens when the body loses a finger? Well, the body loses some of its abilities, and it misses out on something. But you know what happens to the finger if it's not reattached? It dies. That's what happens to us as believers, is if we are confessing believers, if we really do follow Jesus, what it says is we have to be plugged into the body because if we do not, we will eventually die spiritually. You cannot be a part. Yes, and we're going to miss out on things, but here's the truth, is you need the body and the body needs you, but the body can survive without you. You cannot survive without the body. It is... If you try to do life on your own without a strong church community, you will spiritually die eventually. You may be able to last longer than somebody else, but eventually it will happen. I've seen this happen about a thousand times. Uh, so I've been in ministry my entire life. I've been in full-time ministry for almost 20 years. And Doyle and I were talking about this last night, and he said, why don't you just tell them about what you have seen as a pastor over the years? Because it's, just a, it's almost a common occurrence, a weekly occurrence. And here's the scenario is somebody who will come through these doors and maybe their life is broken, their marriage is in pieces, or maybe they're just looking for a community where they can raise their kids. And so they come here and they start getting involved and they're here for a while. And then one weekend you'll look around and you'll go, hey, whatever happened to them? I don't know. They kind of just disappeared. They were really engaged for a while, but they're not here anymore. And we ask around, eh, I don't really know what happened to them. And then fast forward, maybe a year, two years, five years, ten years down the road, somebody will come up to me and go, hey, do you remember such and such? Yeah, I remember them. Whatever happened to them? Yeah, they're divorced now. Ah, their kids went off the deep end. It's a mess. I don't, I'm not even shocked anymore. I just go, yeah, that's another one. It's because when you get d disconnected from the body, something will die. 
And so, yes, we want you here. We love that you are here. We want your gifts here. But the point is that you need to be here. You need to be connected to the body because we will continue moving forward to whatever God has called us to do. The only question is, will you? And the only way to do that is by being here. Someone else, in that, someone else asked in that session, a Q&A session, they said, well, is it like a sin to not go to church? And I said, wrong question. That's like asking, how close to the cliff can I get without falling off and dying? No, 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 no. If you went back to the first century and you were to ask first century Christians, hey, um, do you have to be a part of a church to be a Christian? They would scratch their head and look confused at you because by definition, being a Christian is, by, is being a part of the church. Christ died for the church. <laughs> and so when you, are, when you become a Christ follower, what you're doing is you're saying, I'm giving over my life to Jesus. He is going to in return hand me a new life, a new identity, and a part of that is a new family to belong to. That's why we have all this New Testament brother-sister kinds of language. To say, I'm going to be born again, new identity, but I want to be like a, like a Christian orphan, doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but yet, people try it all the time. See, we were, we were created to be in community, but not just any community. We're created to be in church community. And I can already hear somebody say, well, Cody, don't you know that the church is not a building, it's a people. And I would say, I do know that, actually. I've said that before. Um, but it's more than that as well. Because, like, the argument is, well, we don't have to go to church because we are the church. You need to do a little bit more ecclesiology here because here's what the church is. The church is a people who gather together weekly, who worship, who pray together, who practice the sacraments, who have accountability to one another, who have a structure of pastors and elders. Do you have those things in your living room? No? You're not the church then. Get here. All right. That was a little rude. That little part was rude. That was rude. I apologize. That was rude. I, was, I wasn't going to be snarky, but then it came out, and I just, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> okay. Can I just, one more thing? Can I just vent one more, one more thing really quick? Just re- I'm kind of on one. I'm already in trouble, so let's just go there. I have had lots of conversations recently, not just about being at church, but about, Cody, can you believe what is happening within culture? It is such a mess right now. The political climate, complete disaster. And the first thing I want to ask them is, well, are you plugged into church? What? What are you talking about? Well, because, you know, the one thing that Jesus said would change all of those things, the primary way in which he's going to influence politics, culture, all that, is by being the church. Are you part of the church? No? Then don't talk to me. Because here's, here's, what, here's what Jesus said. If you want a strong culture, you must have a strong church. And so stop complaining about culture unless you're willing to do the work. And the work is strong church, strong culture, strong political environment. Until you get the main thing, the main thing, don't worry about the other ones. Now I'm preaching. I'm getting preachy, okay? I, I apologize for that. And I'm out of time. Okay, um, let me hurry up. That's not even the point of the message. I haven't even gotten to the point yet. 13, uh, 3, 14. Here's what it says. The Dungate was repaired by Malkijah, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Harakim. He built it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. I love, this is my favorite character of the story because he, he was responsible for rebuilding the Dung Gates. I'm assuming you can imagine what that's for. It's kind of in the name, right? 
This is where all the disposable the waste would go out of the city and be burned. And he forever will be remembered as the guy who rebuilt the dung gates. <laughs> I love it. We don't know anything about his marriage, his kids, his hobbies, his personality. For 2,500 years, whenever we hear his name, we hear dung gates. And guess what? He will be remembered far longer than you will. I know it's depressing, but the truth is, is that this man, we still know his name. You? We're not going to know who you are. In just a couple of generations, it'll be as if you never existed. Oh, it's going to get depressing for a second here. Here's how I know this. Um, if, you, if I were to ask you, tell me about your great-grandparents, all of them. Tell me their names, their careers, where they lived, what they loved. Tell me about their marriage. Tell me about how they raised it. Tell me all about them. You know what you would do? Look at me with a blank stare because you have no idea. And that's your family. Imagine the rest of the world. It's as if they never existed. And there's something within all of us that just goes, that can't be. Like it can't be that I've lived this life and I've worked so hard and I've done all of these things to just, it's as if I never existed. Like, I want to make an impact in the world. I want to be, see, we've been told since the earliest of ages that we are going to be world changers, that we're the center of the universe. We are superstars, you know? And so when we read the Bible, like when we're reading Nehemiah, we look at this story, and you know who we think we are? Nehemiah. You're not Nehemiah. You're not even the Dungate guy. You're not even in the story right now. My kids watch, uh, we're watching the show the other day. It was a new show that just came out on Disney. It was called The Diary of a Future President. And it's trying to inspire the kids that you one day could be the future president. And I'm like, turn that nonsense off. That's ridiculous. You will never be president of the United States. That is not going, that is not, I, I don't want you to live with that kind of pressure or disappointment. Let's put on Handy Mandy, that's way more your speed, and forget about it. Because here's what biblical success looks like. Biblical success is not based, on, I said this last week, is not based on fruitfulness but faithfulness. Your job is simply to be faithful to whatever God has called you to do. You don't have to climb the tallest mountain to be important or to be somebody. No, no, no. What you need to do is you need to build the wall that was right in front of you that God put there. My job is simply to be faithful. If it's the dung gate, fine. If it's this grand vision like Nehemiah, awesome. But that's not what success looks like as being Nehemiah versus the Dungate guy. It's being faithful to whatever God has called you to do. And so that's why I try to get into my kid's head early on is, look, I don't care if you do all these grand things or not. All I care about is, are you faithful to what God called you to do? Well, then you're successful. Whatever that looks like, you are a success. And so if he calls you to be a waiter, manager, teacher, business owner, carpenter, I don't care. I want you to do that job and work as if you're working for the Lord. Not your boss who you can't stand, not the customers who are griping. You are working as if you are working for the Lord because that's what success looks like. So let me fast forward to the end here. It is, in the story, it's interesting, is... Um, we see that some of the characters, the first place they start before they kind of get their assignment is, well, I'm just going to start with the wall that's right in front of my house. So they just start building right there, which I think is, is a great point. 
is, okay, I don't know where God has called me to build. I don't know what that looks like. Well, start at your own home. Start there. Start building there. What's your marriage look like? Your kids, your grandkids, are, are, are you investing in them? Are they a priority? Are you trying to create uh, and build up kids who love the Lord as adults? Like, that's where we got to start. So um, let me tell you a quick story to, to finish. Is uh, In the last few years, there has been two men, uh, one that you've heard of and one that you have not heard of. And um, they both passed away of old age. The first guy is named Billy. And um, Billy, you've heard of before, because Billy lived what we would call an extraordinary life. Is he got to speak to tens of thousands of people. In fact, 210 million people by the end of his life heard his message about Jesus through 185 countries. And he went to packed out stadiums and he saw countless people come to Christ. He advised presidents. He met with heads of state. He was a part of the civil rights movement. I mean, he did more in one lifetime than we could ever have imagined. And, and I, would, I would guess that when he died and he met Jesus face to face, Jesus looked at him and said, well done, good and faithful servant. You built the wall that I put in front of you. You were faithful to what I called you to do. Now, there's another guy, and this guy you probably haven't heard of before. His name is, is Buddy. And, and Buddy lived at the same time as Billy, except you had never heard of him before because he just lived in a little town outside of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and he was an accountant he had four kids and a tiny little 800-square-foot house, really modest, humble uh, lifestyle. And he just, he just kept showing up. He never missed a Sunday at church. He never missed his Bible study class. He just kept investing in his marriage and in his kids and in his church. And for 50 years, he did that. And there's never going to be a book written about him. You're never going to hear about him um, celebrated in any awards. You're never going to hear any of that about Buddy. And yet I would imagine that a few years ago when Buddy died, he saw Jesus face to face. And Jesus also looked at him and said, well done, good and faithful servant. You built the wall that I asked you to build. You are successful. See, that, that Buddy is my grandfather, Buddy, Buddy Bergen. You'd never heard of him before, and yet he's had an impact on your life. Because when this church was beginning, he decided, you know what, maybe I'll move out there and just help those poor souls out in California try to get this thing started. And it's because of this, whatever, little insignificant work of this tiny little church by the beach. We see an impact of thousands of lives now today. If I were to go back in time, and I were to sit down with Malkajah, as he is building this dung gate... And, you know, I don't know what his attitude was. Maybe he was excited. Maybe he wasn't. I don't know. But if I were to sit with him, I would thank him. I would say, you know, because of the work that you're doing here and all of the other people who are being faithful to their part of the wall that they were called to build, you've changed my life. Because this very wall and these gates right down there, there will be a man in about 450 years that will walk through those gates and he will declare himself King, Messiah. His name is Jesus. And that will be the beginning of his rule and reign for eternity. And he will not only change my life, he will turn the world upside down. And you know what? You got to be a part of it. Just by building a dung gate, you got to help bring the Messiah to the world. You never know what kind of impact you're going to have when you're being faithful, even in the seemingly insignificant small things. This is what it means to be the people of God. It means that we are people who 
don't pursue fame and success. We just simply want, at the end of the day, to be faithful to whatever God has called us to do. And so let me just shoot you straight really quick here. I want you to walk out, and I want you to just to hear at least this. First thing is, if you are not here, or you're not here regularly, like you come when it's convenient or comfortable, you need to be here. You, you have to be here. It's important for you and for us because if the church is going to have a future here in the West, we are going to have to get serious about building. It's not something we can do passively any longer. It's something that we have to be passionate about. And so we all have to be here. And here's the second part. And showing up isn't enough. You need to pick up a brick and start building something. Start building at home. And then find a job here. Find a place in which you can use your time, talent, or treasures. And so here's the simple takeaway. You need to be here and you need to be involved. Let's pray. Lord God, I am so uh, honored to be a part of this church and this community. Lord, I, I feel like you have given us this fresh passion and vision for what it looks like to be the church in today's society. And Lord, uh, whatever... Um, passive engagement we may have had before, that is over now. You have called us to be passionate believers who want to build your kingdom first and foremost. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would give us a vision for what that looks like individually. But at the end of the day, we say we are here to serve. Wherever, uh, whatever wall you want us to work on, we say yes. Because we know that to have a life of impact is going to be a life of faithfulness. Lord, we love you. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, will you guys stand with me? Thank you guys so much for being here. This, hey, I am so happy you're here in person. I can't tell you. It's just amazing. Anyway, have a great week. God bless you guys. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we also have live services out in our West Auditorium on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings. Or you can always join us live at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time. 